Well, as we continue our journey, Gateway Family, through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus and us, we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 4 today. And I want to ask you a question as we think about Ephesians 4, and that's this question. What grieves you? What grieves you? Not what makes you sad. You may be sad over a football game that didn't go the way you wanted to or not getting something you wanted, but what really grieves you? Now, what is grief? Grief is a deep sadness. It is often related to suffering. I love it. One dictionary said grief is a deep and poignant distress. We often associate grief with the death of a loved one, with some type of broken relationship, with some injustice where someone we love has been harmed. And grief is a good and a normal emotion. But friends, have you ever considered that there are things that grieve God? There's things that grieve God. It's in response to particular things, God himself feels a deep sadness, a grief. But what is it that grieves God? Well, as we continue into Ephesians chapter 4, we come to a place in the New Testament that tells us something that grieves God. Something that, if you will, to use our idiom, it breaks his heart. What is it that would break his heart? Well, we'll see in just a minute. But realize how stunning this is. That the all-powerful, sovereign one who's the creator of all things, who speaks and the universe comes into being. The one who speaks and the dead come back to life. The one who speaks and can part the ocean. The one who can do whatever he wants to do. The sovereign, all-powerful one feels grief in response to something particular. What is it? Well, we'll see in just a moment at the end of Ephesians 4. First of all, I want to remind us where we are in Ephesians. Because I know some of you are guests and many of you have been new to Gateway. So we want you to know what we're looking at as we continue our study through Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we have seen our identity in Christ. What God has done for us. This is not what we've done. This is what God has done for us. That he has adopted us. That we belong to him. That he's transforming us for his glory. But I hope what you've seen over and over through the first three chapters of Ephesians is that this was not just about me and Jesus. What he's done for me, my identity, is a community identity. It's us together. He's adopted not just me and not just you. He's adopted us together to be the church, to belong to him. He's building us together to be a place where his presence is seen. He's using us together to accomplish his mission. With that as the foundation, we got to Ephesians chapter 4. We began to see how to live out that identity, what it means now to apply, to practice who we are in Christ. It's all summed up in chapter 4, verse 1, when he said to us, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've been told to walk worthy. God has done all this for you. He's made you his child. He's adopted you. He's drawn you to himself. He's given you eyes to see. He's given you a seat at his table. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing of the heavens. Now we're told to walk worthy. If you remember from that sermon a while back, that simply means that here's your identity in Christ now and practice by his grace. Live out who he's already said you are. As we work through chapter four, the beginning of walking worthy, I hope you've noticed that almost all the commands are about how we interact together. All the commands about holiness are about us together. We've seen that we're to have a spirit-given love for each other, that we're to be unified, that we're to use our gifts to serve one another. We're to lovingly speak the gospel to one another. We're to speak truth to one another. We're to get rid of all falsehood. We're to get rid of anger that divides us so we can be united. We're to work hard, not for ourselves or our dreams, but so we can give to one another. And then we saw two weeks ago that we're to only speak in ways that give grace that do not decay. All the commands we've been seeing in Ephesians 4 are about how we relate together as the body of Christ. Our identity in Christ is a together, a corporate, if you will, identity. And so therefore, we've seen over and over through chapter 4 here, we're to put off, we're to remove from our lives any sinful things that divide, any things that hurts other believers, that hurts 
other people. We're to put on, we're to add to our lives Christ-like characters that build other people up and that gives grace. It's been a lot that Paul's shown us in this one chapter. What could he possibly say next? Well, he's going to pause after telling us all these things about how we're to relate together. He's going to pause and say, there's something you can do that will grieve God. And what will it be? Well, if you think of what chapter 4 has been all about, I think you'll have a pretty good idea. So I want us to look at this this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start back in verse 29 to get the context and read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. What a treasure we have in having His Word given to us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word, and I pray today as we look at what grieves you, that you would open our hearts to it, that you would stretch our understanding of these things, that you would give us much grace that we might walk worthy and live lives pleasing to you. Lord, we cannot do that in our strength, so we ask for your Holy Spirit to come, to fill us, to open our eyes to the text, to give us conviction where conviction is needed, encouragement where encouragement is needed, just to speak life into each of our hearts and souls today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what is it that grieves God? There's one thing I want you to see in our text this morning. It's simply this. We grieve God when we do not give to others the same grace he has given to us. We grieve God when we do not give to others the same grace he has given to us. Out of all these, these things we've seen in Ephesians 4 about how we walk worthy, how we live together in a way that pleases the Lord, when we choose not to do that, when we choose to follow our sinful ways, our sinful speech in particular that divides, that hurts, that tears down, that breaks unity, that destroys people's lives, when we have that decaying speech, it grieves God because we're not giving to others the same grace that he has given to us. I want you to see this in the text. First of all, that our sin can grieve God. Look back in verse number 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, there's a lot there. We could spend like an hour or two in that one verse, so don't worry. We're not going to spend an hour or two in that one verse, so there's much we could say on us, things we have talked about before. It talks about the Holy Spirit here. Let me just remind us of the simple truth, but the mysterious truth. There's only one God, but he exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not worship three gods. There's one God, but he exists as three persons. And all three persons of the Godhead are all fully God. It's not like God is one-third Father and one-third Son and one-third Spirit. No, God is fully God, and he shows himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one is fully God, and each has all the attributes. I think sometimes in Christian thinking, people somehow think, well, the Father is the just one, and the Son is the merciful one, and the Spirit's the gracious one. No, They're all fully, all the attributes, all the time. So the Father is just, the Son is just, and the Spirit is just. The Father is love, the Son is love, the Spirit is love. The Father is wrath, the Son is wrath, the Spirit is wrath. The Father is mercy, the Son is mercy, the Spirit is mercy. You you get the idea, right? We go on and on of all the possible attributes. But they're all fully God and all possess all the attributes of God. They're one in essence, but have distinct roles. And in particular, the Holy Spirit bears witness about who God is. He searches out things. He speaks. He teaches. He convicts. He guides. He dwells in believers. He glorifies Christ in so much more. And friends, with that in mind, it's interesting because Paul could have easily written here, 
do not grieve the Father who has chosen you for salvation. That's not what he says. He could have said, do not grieve the Son who purchased your salvation. But he, he doesn't say that either. He could have just spoken generally. Do not grieve God who's rescued you from your sins. But he doesn't do that either. Look at what he, what he says here and who he highlights. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why does he focus in on the third person of the Godhead? Why does he focus in on the Holy Spirit in terms of us grieving God? Well, he tells us in the last part of the verse here, back in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the reason the Holy Spirit is highlighted for being grieved has to do with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now, this hopefully sounds familiar. Turn back to chapter 1, just a few pages to verses 13. And 14, because we've already seen this idea, this is not the first time Paul has introduced this for us. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we're told, In him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I know we talked about this before, but when I preached on this text before, that was back in May, on May 27th. And if you're like me, I don't remember much things from May. That seems like a long time ago. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Two things. First of all, a seal shows ownership. The fact we're sealed by the Holy Spirit means that we belong to God. It's the mark that we are adopted, that we're God's children, the mark that we have a seat at his table, that no one can take us from God because we belong to him. But the second thing is a seal shows that a promise is guaranteed. In the old days, if a king sent a letter with a big promise, I'll give you this land, I want you to do this, there'd be a seal on it to show that he has the authority to deliver whatever he has promised. And the Holy Spirit in us is the promise that we will make it to that day of redemption that Ephesians 4 is talking about. And on the day of redemption, that we will not face damnation for our sins, rather we will face the the mercy of God and seeing God face to face and being welcomed into his forever kingdom. Now, friends, let me remind us the work of the Holy Spirit in doing that for us is it's not just a me and God thing here. It's a community thing. The Holy Spirit who dwells within me dwells within each one of you also if you're a child of God. And he's not just letting dwelling you so you can go do your thing and me so I can do my thing. He's dwelling within all of us to bring us together in the process of sealing us and then bringing us to that day of redemption. In between, he's not passive. He is working actively, as we've seen, to bring us Together. In fact, look at what the Holy Spirit does in Ephesians 2. Go over probably about one page in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. In whom, that's in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is describing the church, that together we're the temple for the Lord, the place where he shows his presence most. Then verse 22, how's God building his church? In him you also, this is you plural, us together, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by who? By who? By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is dwelling us together, bringing us together. He takes us. He seals us. He secures us for that day of redemption. In between, He is bringing us together to be a dwelling place for God. So think about His work that we see highlighted in chapters 1 and 2. He's the one who seals us, saying we belong to God. Nothing can break that. Nothing can break that seal. Not even Satan himself can break that seal in our lives if we're a child of God. There's nothing he could possibly grieve over with that because we're secure. God has saved us. No one can take us out of his hands. There's nothing for him to grieve about. He will see us through to the day of redemption. That's going to be sure as well. God is faithful. He will always do his promises. Nothing for the Spirit of God to grieve over because he will surely bring us to that day of 
redemption. But in the process, he is actively working to build us together in unity. And friends, we can break that unity with our sin. His work between sealing us, which cannot be broken, his work in the day of redemption, which cannot be stopped, in between he's bringing us corporately together, bringing unity to brothers and sisters in Christ. And friends, our sin can destroy that work. And he can grieve over that. When we oppose his work, when we undo his work, he grieves. And look at what he's doing. Chapter 2, verse 22. In him you also are being built together. We're being unified, friends, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I want you to see in today's text that this is what is particularly in view that grieves him. When we, by our words in particular, break the unity God is creating. Look at chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Again, notice what comes right before or after the text about grieving. First, right before it, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. May give grace to those who hear. Now, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, what's the other side of that verse? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What's being highlighted here is what grieves the Holy Spirit is our speech that hurts other people. Our speech that causes, if you think back to two weeks ago, our speech can either decay or give grace. And when we have speech that causes decay, that causes rot, that hurts other people, the Spirit of God grieves within us over what our words are doing to other people. Back in verse 29 here, it said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. That means things that are rotting and stinking. No talk that's going to cause decay. And our decaying speech that causes rot, whether it's a slander, whether it's profanity, whatever it is, grieves him because it decays what he's building. And you come down to verse 31, and verse 31 should sound very familiar for us because these are a lot of things that Paul has already told us. But he's told us here to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Bitterness. So we already talked about anger over a long period of time. It's grudges. It's that unforgiveness where stuff inside of you is still mad about perceived wrongs from years gone by or weeks gone by, and you just cannot let it go. When we hold bitterness in our heart, friend, it grieves the Holy Spirit because our bitterness creates distance between us and people that He's trying to bring us together with. We're told to put off all wrath or anger. These are basically synonyms, and like we've talked about before, anger is not an emotion. Anger is a moral choice we make to situations we do not like. And so he says, get rid of the anger in your life. And the wrath is just that uncontrolled anger, that passion that goes with it. Because it grieves him. Because, friends, when we get angry, I don't think we like to think of it this way, we're showing hatred to whoever we're getting angry at. And it grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves that person that we're angry at, that we're wrathful to, and it grieves him. But notice the next word. It's not a word we use every day. Let all clamor be put away from you. What in the word is that? That's not a word you use every day. Is your house full of clamor? Like, this is a word that simply means yelling and shouting. Let this sink in here. What we're told to put off because it grieves God is yelling and shouting. Friends, when we raise our voices to our spouse, when we raise our voices to our kids, when we raise our voices to other believers and yelling and shouting, it grieves the Holy Spirit within us. Because he is himself the God of peace who works to create peace. And we use our tongues to destroy that peace as we yell and as we shout. But there's more we're told to put off. We're to put off all slander as well. Slander is taught that causes other people to have a poor opinion of someone else. 
friends, we mentioned it before, but in the church, how much slander happens is prayer requests. We're really not praying and not caring about the person. We just want to pass along the gossip, and we cloak it in spiritual terms of, oh, you need to pray for so-and-so. Did you hear what they did? And we cloak it as, so, we cloak it as prayer, but it's really slander, and that grieves the Holy Spirit within us because it breaks the unity that he is working to build. And friends, in all of those things, whether it's the decaying speech, whether it's the slander, whether it's wrath, bitterness, whatever, we're told to put those off because they grieve him because all of those types of speech divide people. All those types of speech break the unity of the home and the church that he is seeking to build. There's another reason that type of speech grieves the Holy Spirit so bad, and we see it in verse 32. Look down at it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Another reason why the Holy Spirit within inside of us grieves so much when we have this type of speech is because we're failing to extend to others the same grace that he has given to us. We've received grace and we're refusing to pass it on. Now back to Ephesians 2. Think about how we have offended God and what we need from him. Look at Ephesians 2, first three verses. This is the description of all of us apart from Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, our state before God is pretty rough apart from Christ, isn't it? It describes us being ruled by our passions of following the prince of the power there, that Satan, that we are dead in our sins, that we are enslaved to our sins, that there is no hope for us. Think about how that description shows how much we've offended God. The holy God is the creator of all. who said, be holy as I am holy. And this is all of us. We're following Satan. We're enslaved to our sinful passions. We're doing that like the rest of mankind. And friends, think of how God responded to us in our sin. Did he get bitter at us? Did he get angry at us and yell at us? Did he slander us before the angels of heaven? Hey, do you see what they're doing down there? I can't believe that. Did he destroy us with his words? Did he cause decay in our life through the words, the things that we often do in our relations? Did he do that to us? No. What did God do? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. No, when, when we offended God, instead of getting angry at us and getting bitter and gossiping and slandering us, what did he do? He showed grace to us. He showed mercy to us. He did not give us what we deserved. He forgave us and he invited us to sit at his table with him, even when we were so undeserving. I love how it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I just want you to see this verse. Because notice the timing of this. It's not, but God showed his love for us that once we clean up our act, he had mercy on us. No, it's notice the timeline. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait till we got our act together and got cleaned up to show mercy on us. He extended mercy and grace to us when we were still in our rebellion. And yet, friends, we have seen so much mercy from him, and yet we refuse to extend it to others. Look back in Ephesians 4, verse 32 here. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Friends, whatever thing you and I are bitter about, angry about, shouting about, yelling about, whatever it is, pales in comparison to the offense that we gave God. 
The sins that have been done to us are trivial compared to how we have offended God's holiness and his majesty. And yet we hang on to our bitterness. We hang on to our anger, our yelling, our tearing down, our decaying speech. And when we do that, because we're not passing on the same grace that God has shown to us, it grieves the Holy Spirit within us. We grieve God, friends. We do not give to others the same grace he's given to us. But friends, there's an amazing implication here with this. So this text doesn't say it. We know in the rest of Scripture that God rejoices. So think of the flip side of this truth. If by God's grace and God's strength, not anything we can conjure up, but by God's grace, we're able to love others and do verse 32, to be kind to one another, even if they've wronged us, to be tenderhearted to people who otherwise in our human flesh we get upset with because they annoy us. If we forgive those who've sinned against us, the same way that God has forgiven us. Friends, the Spirit of God rejoices in us over that. So the kind of flip side of our idea is God rejoices when we give to others the same grace that he has given to us. So two weeks ago, I asked the the sobering question of myself and you as well. Does my speech cause decay or does my speech give grace? Today, I want to ask you this. Do, Do our words cause the Holy Spirit to grieve or to rejoice? Do the words that have come out of my mouth this week cause the Holy Spirit to grieve or rejoice? Do the words that have come out of your mouth this week cause the Holy Spirit within you to grieve or to rejoice? And friends, if we're honest, every single one of us has grieved the Holy Spirit at times with our words. Probably in the last seven days, maybe in the last 24 hours even as well, we've grieved the Holy Spirit with our words. Let me ask you, friends, when we discover points in our life and points in our day where our speech is causing decay, is hurting others, is breaking unity in the home or the church, and we're saying that it's grieving God, is there any hope? And the answer is yes, there is much hope. And the hope is not, I'm going to buy a new book on my tongue to get better at it. The hope is not, I'm going to get a new accountability group. The hope is not, I'm going to try harder. What is the hope? Well, I want you to turn over one book to the book of Galatians. We've looked at this text before, but I think it's very fitting to look at it one more time as we think about our speech before we move on to other topics in the book of Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5, go back to verse 19. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now works means the results of the, the, the evidence of our flesh, our sinful tendencies being in control. What is, what is the evidence that our sinful tendencies are in control? We go through the list here in 1920. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. In verse 20, idolatry, sorcery. Now notice where he starts next. It's a whole thing that deal with our speech. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And he goes on in verse 21. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The words for speech you just saw are very similar to the words we've been seeing in Ephesians for the types of speech that cause decay, that divide. But friends, we don't have to be bound to that. Look at where it goes next in verse 22. Here's the hope for us. And again, the hope is not a new book to read, not a new accountability group, not just trying hard. Here's the hope. But the fruit of the Spirit. And let me just pause here. The fruit is the result of it, of something that happens to you, the result of the Spirit being in control of our life. Friends, if you drive down to Disney in Orlando and you pass the, the, the fields of the orange trees, the reason there's oranges on the trees is because they're orange trees, right? And it's because they're orange trees that have been well-fed and well Nurtured. You don't drive down and see an apple on an orange tree. If there's fruit, it's because there's a certain type of tree that's getting the nutrition it needs. Friends, that's the image for us here of not of things I'm trying to do, but this is the result. I'm not just going to try harder to clean up my speech. This is the speech comes out of the heart. And the question is, is the Holy Spirit have control of our heart and our affection? So look at what the fruit of the Spirit is in our life. If He has control, this is what He produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Friends, do you realize all that divisive speech we've been seeing in Ephesians that we've been warned about over and over, how that all gets corrected with these things? Friends, there is hope that our speech can be loving, even to people who have not been loving to us. Our speech can be joyful, even in the trials. Our speech can be peaceful in our homes and in our churches and and everyone we interact with. Our speech can be patient, even when our kids have, have tested us again for the hundredth time, right? Our speech can be kind, can be good, can be faithful. Our speech can be gentle, even when we've been hurt deeply. Our speech can have self-control, even if a person has sinned against us over and over and over again. Our speech can be all those things, not because I've tried hard, not because I have a white-knuckled determination. My speech can be all those things because the Holy Spirit, who not only seals us, who not only guarantees us to make a day of redemption, is working within us to produce this in our lives. He does this. There's no hope in self-effort. I will never clean up my speech, and you won't clean up your speech on our own, but He, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, can change our hearts so the fruit of our life is speech that is loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. So, friends, the question for us is, have we asked Him to do that? When was the last time we said, Holy Spirit, my speech towards my spouse, my kids, my co-workers, was ungodly. It was decaying. I can't fix it, but would you change my heart so that what the fruit that shows is speech that is loving, is patient? When have we asked him to do that? Because it seems like, friends, if you're like me, we much more make excuses for our speech than we ask for help from the Holy Spirit to change our speech. We want to blame someone else, or they provoked me, or if they just hadn't done that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. I just had to get out. And we make all these excuses for us when in reality, when in our sinful flesh, when our speech is divisive and decaying comes out, instead of making our excuses and passing the blame, we need to cry out and say, Holy Spirit, I have blown it again. But I'm thankful that Jesus died to set me free. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, to take control, to change our hearts so that our speech changes as well. Then he can rejoice in us. Then God's church is built up, and then God's people experience grace. So friends, we grieve God when we do not give to others the same grace he's given to us. But God also rejoices as he changes us so our speech gives to others the same grace he has given to us. So friends, what is true for you today? What's true for me today? Is my speech and your speech, is it grieving God or is God rejoicing because he's produced the fruit that changes us? Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, I do pray that today and in the week to come, God, that you would convict us of areas where our speech grieves you. Lord, I confess so often, I I don't think about my sin grieving you. Lord, we talk about the Holy Spirit filling us, but Lord, I don't think we really grasp the significance of you and your holiness have chosen to send your spirit to dwell within us. And God, I pray this week you would make us very aware of your presence that we really grasp the significance that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within our hearts and within our lives. And God, I pray that would give us fresh strength to pursue you, fresh resolve to seek your grace, to overcome sinful patterns in our lives. And Lord, I do pray particularly this week as we talk about speech again. I know that we spent multiple weeks on speech because you, you value our speech and you know how powerful our words are. Lord, I pray this week you give us much grace. That Lord, to times we fall, they realize that our Acceptance by you is not based on us trying harder. It's not based on us doing things right, Lord. We stand already forgiven because of Christ, not because of anything in us. But we do pray, Holy Spirit, that as you fill us this week, I pray that you would convict me, you convict each of these precious brothers and sisters. There's areas to where we have speech that decays, where we have bitterness, where we have shouting and yelling, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever we have speech that's not giving grace, that's not building up. 
and your kindness to us and your kindness to those around us. Would you convict us of that? Not to, to tear us apart, but to convict us to bring us to repentance. Lord, we're so thankful that you love us so much. You don't leave us in our sin. Why don't you discipline us and you pursue us because you know there's something so much better for us. So Lord, this week I pray that you would give much grace to me and to these brothers and sisters, that we would be a people, Lord, whose speech gives grace to all those around, in our homes, in our jobs, in our school, even to the people in the cars around us that we don't know as we're driving down the road, where there be a grace-filled people who've been changed by you and it'll be obvious to others so that you get the glory and we find the joy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?